Our passage today is a familiar one, and it comes from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is what I like to call a Sunday school famous story. It's one that many of us have heard over and over and over again. In fact, we've probably memorized cute little songs about Zacchaeus, the wee little man. You know, it's one of those stories that is a beautiful picture of the character of God. We see that God is forgiving, he is merciful, and he extends grace regardless of our circumstances and regardless of our sin. But today, instead of looking at this story through the lens of God's character, I would like to look at it through the lens of his pace. Put simply, Jesus was not in a hurry. When I was in college, I was a runner. And being a runner in the state of Illinois, you get familiar with one of these things here. You get used to running on a treadmill because, if we're honest, there are not many days in the winter or the spring where you can get outside and enjoy the beautiful weather. And so my teammates and I would go to the gym every day for practice, and we would get on our treadmills, and we would set them at full incline and full speed. And we would do repetition workouts. We would run 30, 40, 50 seconds and then take a couple-minute break before getting back on the treadmill and running again. Well, one day we were preparing uh, to qualify for the national meet, and we had gone to race against some of the best in the country. And to be honest, we didn't do very well. We didn't come close to reaching our goals that day, and as we sat on the bus heading back to Wheaton College, we were disappointed. It was 10.30 p.m. when the bus pulled in, and we were ready to just go back to our beds in our dorm rooms and rest up and try to qualify the next week. We began to get off the bus, and the coach turned to me and the rest of the relay team and said, guys, your day is not done. Our hearts kind of started pounding a little bit. He said, head over to the gym. I'll meet you there. And so we walked over to the gym in the pitch black, we got there, the doors were locked, the lights had all been shut off, and we waited for our coach. He came and he opened it up for us and said, get on your treadmills. And so we got on the treadmills, and we set them at 
full incline and full speed, and we waited for further instructions. Our captain turned to the coach and said, Coach, how many repetitions will we run today? And coach said, just one. We all breathed a sigh of relief, thinking, oh, one repetition, this can't be that bad. And so we stood there waiting, and the coach turned to us and said, you're going to run one repetition until failure. Our stomachs dropped a little bit, and we started to get this anxious feeling until we lowered ourselves on the treadmill and began to run. And sure enough, one at a time, our legs gave way, and we collapsed to the treadmill and fired off the back. Just telling this story brings this stress, this anxiety back for me. I'm sure as many of you see me standing over this belt that's whirring beneath me, you're hoping, please don't step down. And I promise I won't today. But the reality is, is that many of us live our lives as if we are running on this treadmill. We have bought into the lie that we have one life and we must run it at full speed until we fail. During this series, we are talking about giving up. We're talking about releasing the idols and distractions in our lives that keep us from experiencing God fully. Today, I want to encourage us to give up hurry, to release our grip on the need to continue in this frenzy and frenetic life, and instead, step off the treadmill. But as we ask ourselves to give up hurry, I think it's important for us to recognize the limitations of a hurried life. The first limitation of a hurried life is that in our hurry, we let culture and not God dictate our movement. We allow the expectations of others to dictate our pace. You see, on a treadmill, I cannot run any slower than the belt is moving. I could not stop here to tie my shoe or to talk to somebody. Instead, I must continue taking steps, moving forward to stay up with the rhythm and the pace of the belt beneath me. The same is true about our lives, is that when we allow the expectations of others to dictate the pace at which we travel, we can simply keep up. You see, we're told constantly that we need to have a family that is perfect, that looks exactly like everyone else's. We need to prepare our children for success, and, and our friends, their kids are doing all sorts of activities. They're on the club soccer team. They're in clarinet lessons. They have after-school academic clubs. And so we're busy running from place to place, getting our kids to where they need to be so that they might succeed. We're told by our culture that we are expected to have success in the workplace. And so we pursue that wholeheartedly as fast as we can, working late hours and ignoring obligations with our families in pursuit of this pace on this treadmill. So often we're caught up in these rhythms where we are quickly moving from one thing to the next, struggling to get our kids where they need to be, 
to succeed in the places that we've been called to succeed and to get meals onto the table. I mean, there are entire companies that are built around this premise that our lives are so hurried we can't even shop for groceries. And so they'll deliver meals for us to quickly prepare and throw in the oven. As Christians, we're called to allow God to dictate our pace. But I fear that if we are constantly keeping up with the rhythms and the pace of others, that we lose our ability to do so. Jesus was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And he had a place to go. He was heading over to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. He and his disciples were going to go and be in the temple to celebrate the exodus of the Israelite slaves from Egypt. This was something that that many devout Jews would do. They would travel from all over the region and find themselves at this temple in Jerusalem to celebrate and worship together. You see, they had a specific destination and, and a specific time that they had to get there. On top of that, Jesus, as a rabbi, was going to have an opportunity to teach in the temple. And because so many people from around the region were traveling that way, he was going to have a chance to talk to a rather influential group of people. So on top of needing to be there at a certain time, there was a certain gravity to the experience that they were having. And finally, to add a cherry on top, Jesus has just told his disciples in the chapter prior to this that that when they get to Jerusalem, all of his ministry... Everything that he's been talking about, everything that he's been then pursuing, all the prophecies that he has read are going to come to fruition. Jesus, by all rights, from someone looking from the outside in, should have been in a hurry. He should have been rushing to get to the temple in time so that he could prepare to talk to this great group of people. He should have been in a rush. All of his life had been building to this one moment But instead of rushing, we see that Jesus is anything but in a hurry. And not only does he talk to Zacchaeus, he says, I want to stay with you today. As Christians, we should be looking at how we can slow the pace of our life, how we can get off the treadmill. But more often than not, the reality is that as believers, we actually run faster than everyone else. Because not only are we meeting the expectations of our world, but we're also trying to keep up with the expectations of of this, this good Christian life. We go to church. We keep up in our Bible studies. We try to volunteer. We push our kids into youth programs. And we're constantly going here and there to try to keep up our Christian appearances. So rather than slowing down, rather than getting off the treadmill, we simply ramp it up. So how do we begin to remove that hurry? How do we step off the treadmill? I think it's important at first to evaluate our pace. If we are going to remove hurry from our lives, we need to be conscious of where we are hurrying and why we are hurrying there. And so our first step is to evaluate. 
to pause and to think about the activities in which we are participating. Stephen Covey, a famous author and leadership coach, says that basically all activities in life can fit in one of four boxes. He calls it his importance versus urgency matrix. And the first box is pretty self-explanatory. It is both important and urgent. These would be things in our lives that are crises. My wife is going into labor, and so now all of my attention needs to be focused on getting to the hospital, not mowing the lawn. My child has suffered a significant injury, and so I need to help them rather than worry about whether or not I can get dinner on the table in time. The stove has caught fire. Right now is not a great time to catch up on that television show I missed from a week ago. You see, we can recognize these things in our lives that are both important and urgent. They are pressing. They need to be addressed. And on top of that, they have significant impact in our lives. The second box that is fairly clear to us is is that fourth box. It is neither important nor is it urgent. These are the distractions of our lives. Our cell phones, our social media, our Netflix or our Hulu. They're activities that are not pressing. There's no time constraint on them. And they really have no lasting impact on our lives. But more often than not, we find that they fill a substantial chunk of time in our day and cause us to hurry all the more in our other activities. The third box is what Stephen Covey says that oftentimes we get caught in. Because it has this facade of importance, but the reality is it's urgent, but it's not important. These are those activities that are built around the expectations that others are placing onto us. These are the feelings that we need to get our kids to every single practice so that somehow they can get into the very, very best college, so that they can get the very best internship, so that they can get the very best job. And if I don't get them to practice in time, all of their life will be a failure. This is the belief that if I am not the best in my workplace, if I do not work the longest hours, If I not lose the most sleep, then I will get behind and my peers will succeed and I will fail. And all I'll have is my faith and my family and my friends. You see, we get caught up in these things that seemingly are urgent, but they're not very important. And they keep us from the things that Stephen Covey says are extremely important but not very urgent at all. Things like a meal around the dining room table with our family to check in and to bond with one another. Dan talked just a few weeks ago about romance and how easy it is to put it on the back burner as we are caught up in this chaotic way of living. I think about my faith life and my devotion and time spent with God. These are the most formational things in my life, yet they are the quickest to be cut from the schedule. Why? Because 
we know that they extend the grace of tomorrow. If I don't get to them today, I can get to them the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. But the reality is, until we begin to release those things that are seemingly urgent but not important, we will never truly address the formational things in our lives. So as we begin to understand the limitations of hurry, as we begin to remove hurry from our lives, we must first start by evaluating the activities that we're participating in and choose different periods of our lives that can be removed. The second limitation of hurry is that in our hurry, we lose track of the present in pursuit of what is next. When I was running on that treadmill that evening after the track meet, all I could think about was not failing. How can I get my foot in front of the next over and over and over again so that I don't have to suffer the pain both physically and humbly of falling down and shooting off the back of the treadmill? I didn't think about my form and whether or not this would translate into appropriate running on a track. I didn't think about my teammates that were next to me. I was no longer concentrating on the televisions in front of the treadmills with sports highlights. I was consumed with not failing. And so it is with our lives. If we are constantly trying to get to the next, to, to meet these expectations, then we'll find that we never really experience what all of these different activities in our lives have to offer because we think only of how to get to the next thing, how to move forward, and how we can avoid failing. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has every reason to be in a hurry, but he is not. He fights the temptation to think about the next and instead pursues that moment. Just a few months ago, my wife and I, we were heading back to Seattle uh, for Christmas with my family. And like any holiday vacation, we were a little bit late as we got into our Uber in the morning and headed off to the airport, but we felt pretty good. We were going to be able to get there in time, get through the long security lines, maybe even have a bite to eat once we got to the other side before sitting down at our gate. And sure enough, the, the doors of the airport open, we walk in, and the security line is three football fields long, as it typically is during the holidays. But again, we had, we had provided ourselves enough time, and so we weren't panicked. We got in the line, and, and we used that time in line to talk about the things that we were going to do once we got to Seattle. The people we were going to visit the restaurants we were going to check out, the hikes that we wanted to go on, and, and we were having fun talking about this vacation, this break from the stress and the chaos of our lives. And we finally got up to the ticket taker, and we handed him our tickets, and we, we stood there for a moment, and he looked at us and said, well, I can't let you through. And I thought to myself, all right, this is not a great time for a joke. But I asked, why? He said, well, your tickets aren't in your name. And I said, what do you mean? And he, and he showed me my wife's ticket, and I realized that I had booked her ticket, not in her married name, but instead in her maiden name, Brittany Berg. 
And sure enough, we had no identification that would say that she wasn't Brittany Stearns, that she was Brittany Berg. And so we had to go and run over to the ticket counter. And at this point, we're starting to get a little bit frustrated, starting to get a little frazzled, and, and we're no longer in such a good position. There's a pretty good chance now that we might be late for our flight. And so we go, and it's early in the morning. It's only 5.30 now. And believe it or not, there are no managers at the American Airlines ticket counter at 5.30 in the morning. So the lady there says, you're going to have to call in and, and, and talk to the ticketing agency over the hotline. So we, we call American Airlines, and believe it or not, we were put on hold. And uh, we sat on hold for about 30 minutes. And at this point, it wasn't looking good for us. And this is where kind of the wheels started to fall off and the blame game began. Brittany pointed her finger at me. How dare you book our ticket with the wrong name? We've been married five years. <laughs> and of course, I fire back. Well, it's on your ticket. How did you not recognize that that wasn't your name? You see, what had been a fun and happy moment between my wife and I quickly turned into a disaster, and our tensions flared, and our frustration was evident. We can all relate with a moment like this, where our hurry, where our panic has caused us to be frustrated with those that are around us. Many of us don't even need to look past our morning commutes. As we come in and we see those brake lights and we slow down and we begin to shake our fist and say things that we probably shouldn't to the cars around us. The reality is, is that extreme hurry causes anger, contempt, frustration, and tension. And if we can agree on that, then it's likely that we can also agree that a low-level, constant hurry in our life subconsciously creates tension between ourselves and others. A low level of constant hurry creates a subconscious tension between us and our loved ones and our God. Because now, instead of being partners in the journey, now instead of being a part of this experience we have together, they are an impediment for us getting to what is next. Again, Jesus is, has every reason to be in a hurry. And, and Jesus, we see throughout his ministry, is constantly being berated by crowds that are following him. You see, people have no shame in trying to get Jesus' attention. We hear earlier in his ministry that, that, that sick people actually tug on his robes, believing that if I just touch his clothing, I will be healed. There are friends that tear apart the roof of a home to lower a man right on top of Jesus as he preaches. They send servants to shout out in the crowd, to call out to Jesus, to get his attention. I picture Jesus uh, like a celebrity getting out of his limo and trying to make his way into the award show with, with the crowds of reporters and people pouring in on him and his disciples doing their best to keep the street open. Jesus maybe is holding his cloak over his face in order to hide himself and get to his next destination. But the reality is, he doesn't do that. In fact, not only is Jesus present to the people that are calling out to him, but his head is up 
and he sees somebody who has yet to speak. And Jesus addresses Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus can even call to him. You see, Jesus, because he set a pace for himself, Jesus, because he is not in a hurry, is able to recognize the presence of Zacchaeus before him both physically and emotionally. And he sees in him this hurt and this pain that needs to be addressed by the Savior. You see, if we are to get off the treadmill, if we are to remove hurry from our lives, we must begin by evaluating our pace, but then practice the presence. Brother Lawrence was a monk, and he, he's the author of a book um, called Practicing the Presence of Our God. And in that book, he has this beautiful quote, and it goes like this. Think often on God by day, by night, in your business, and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. Leave him not alone. You see, Brother Lawrence believed what we believe, that God is omnipresent, that God is surrounding us here right now, that his very spirit is in this room. And Brother Lawrence believes that if that's true, if God is really omnipresent, that means every moment of our lives has the potential to experience our creator. But the fact of the matter is, we rarely do. And Brother Lawrence says that's because we are not intentional about practicing the presence in our daily activities. And so he, as a monk, would encourage his followers to think about Jesus as they wash the dishes, look for him in their meals with others, be intentional about seeing him in their travel. I had a professor that encouraged us uh, to follow Brother Lawrence's words. And, and for a week, he told us in the cafeteria, every time you have a meal, ask yourself, what does this flavor, what does this taste tell me about God? How is God active and present right here at this cafeteria table? He told us when we are walking to and from class to put our phones down and instead look for God surrounding us. How is he evident in the birds and the breeze? How is he nudging us to the people that are walking past us? And at first it seemed ridiculous. But the more and more we did it, the more and more in tune we came with God's spirit, and the easier it was to see God present among us. If we are to slow our hurry, we must evaluate the places that we indeed are hurrying. And then... We must begin to look for God in the places that he is urging us to go. This week, that might mean a mundane thing like sitting in traffic and fighting the temptation to be frustrated, but instead begin looking for God in the faces of those that surround you. This might mean that we begin to look for God around the dining room table with our families. We look for God with our coworkers and our classmates. If we are to defeat hurry, we must practice the presence of God 
in our everyday life. The final limitation of hurry that we're going to talk about today, the final limitation of a hurried life is that in our hurry, we stay put. I have walked one and a half miles today on this treadmill. But I have a few hundred witnesses here that can testify that I haven't left the stage. You see, when you're on a treadmill, although you are exerting a lot of effort, although you are taking a lot of steps, you don't actually move at all. You stay in that very same spot. Well, so too it is with hurry is that while we are doing a lot of things, while we are achieving a lot of goals, the reality is, is that in the important places of life, we've experienced no transformation. Our spirit has not moved an inch, and instead, we remain the same person we were 10 years ago. It's not because we haven't achieved success. It's not because we haven't done a lot of things. It's because we've never had time to truly reflect and experience the transformation that God has for us in each and every day. Jesus, again, had every right to be in a hurry. But instead, he looks up. He sees Zacchaeus and he recognizes a need. He is present in that moment and he goes to Zacchaeus' home and he shares the day with a man that everyone else believes is a scumbag. Right? He's this filthy, despicable tax collector. Not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector, but he's also a tax collector in the most influential region in all of the Roman Empire. And so the people that he is collecting taxes from, the people that he is swindling, are powerful and influential people. I want you to think for a moment, then the type of impact that this meal that Jesus shares has in the transformation not only of Zacchaeus, but also an entire region of the Roman Empire. Zacchaeus leaves this experience with Jesus saying that I'm going to repay all of my money. Not only am I going to pay people back, but I'm going to pay them back four times the amount that I swindled from them. I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor and the needy and those that are reaching out to me. Think for a moment if someone had, had swindled you and taken your money and they came and they rang your doorbell and said, I am so sorry for how I behaved. And not only am I going to pay you back, but I'm going to give you four times the amount. Wouldn't you be curious as to why? Wouldn't you be curious as to how that transformation had happened in their lives? And Zacchaeus gets to share, it's because I experienced my Savior in a real way. And now this entire influential region of Rome has a chance to experience God through Zacchaeus. The final thing that we must do to eliminate hurry and to step off the treadmill is to examine our lives. Ignatius of Loyola says that we should be practicing something called the prayer of examine every single day. It's a chance for us to look back on our lives and ask ourselves where God was present today and where I denied his presence in my activities. And instead of going through the four points of the prayer of examine, 
I want to invite us all, as we wrap up this sermon, as we think about stepping off the treadmill of a hurried life, to pray this prayer together. In this prayer, there will be silence, and there will be time for you to reflect. And I encourage you in that time to ask yourself how you might slow the hurry and experience God's presence. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come into this place humbled by your presence. We admit to you that more often than not, we have hurried after the things of this world and denied the urges of our heart. Lord, this morning we invite you in this place and we pray that our hearts would be open to your spirit. As we sit here, I want you to be conscious of the presence of God surrounding you. Imagine God physically sitting with you. You may have to imagine it in an empty room, maybe in the beauty of nature or in a familiar place. But invite God to be present in your heart in this moment. Take some time to thank God for the blessings that he has poured out on your day. No matter how inconsequential or small they may seem, remember to thank God for his movement in your life. Take some time to think back over your week. Reflect on the places that you experienced God. And if you simply cannot remember, take some time to think about those places that maybe you ignored him calling in your life. finally, as we leave this place, pray that God would open your eyes to see his movement today. Lord God, we are in such a hurry to avoid failure. 
And so often in avoiding failure, we miss out on everything that you have called us to and a life that is flourishing. We pray that we would take the appropriate steps to remove hurry from our lives and to get off the treadmill. We pray this in your name. Amen.